There were three extraordinary children in the Tenenbaum family. I said sell it, yeah. Chaz Tenenbaum was a financial expert and started buying real estate in his early teens. Margot Tenenbaum was an acclaimed playwright and won a Pulitzer Prize in the ninth grade. Richie Tenenbaum was a champion tennis player ranked second in the world by age 17. They were brilliant. They were famous. They were unlucky enough to be the children of a man named Royal Tenenbaum. Are you getting divorced? It doesn't look good. Was that our fault? Obviously, we made certain sacrifices as a result of having children, but uh, no, Lord, no. Thank you, Pagoda. Well, I'm on my way. Now, for the first time in 22 years... I hear you're dying. Oh, how are you going to last? A month? A year? I've got six weeks to set things right. <laughs> They're all living together under the same roof, in harmony. I love you more than anything. <laughs> Since 1984, Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together by connecting them to each other through themes, cast and crew members, or other various elements. Can't somebody be a jerk their whole life and try to repair the damage? You probably don't even know my middle name. That's a trick question. You don't have one. Helen. Welcome to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. We normally craft double features of films that are connected in some way to one another, be that thematically through the artist's decade, the artistic movement, and more. The only caveat is that every film we discuss must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We also highlight new additions to the collection each month, as we'll be doing today. We also highlight some great hidden gems on the channel and more. I am Mackenzie, as always, and this is my lovely co-host, Ian. Hello, Mackenzie. Hello, Ian. Uh, and this week, we are beginning our very first event programming with Wes Anderson's Bad Dad Trilogy. As you heard our friend Jasher so eloquently announced to you last week with spine number 157, 2001's The Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, and even more special than this event and being joined by my dear friend, Ian, we are being joined today by a very special guest. Uh, if you listen to Austin Danger podcast, you may recognize this person from the Hook episode. If you've followed me online for a long time, you may remember our short-lived D&D podcast, Dungeon Wives. Remember that, honey? Uh, the love of my life, <laughs> Rachel Woods, is joined uh, with us today. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Hello, Rachel. <laughs> very happy to be here beyond thrilled to have you here and to be finally talking face to face <laughs> yes I, I feel like you two existed you know two very specific parts of my life and you've never you've never met before so this is a real moment for me <laughs> <laughs> well um you know we've got an, we've got to talk world tenant bombs later on in the episode but before we get to that uh we love to ask our guests relation long standing with one of the co-hosts or not <laughs> <laughs> what their favorite films in the criterion collection are now we're all kind of inundated with letterbox content with shows surrounding letterbox so we all know the i guess trope at this point of four faves 
You got four faves on Letterbox. I got four faves on Letterbox. So does McKenzie. But here we like to ask specifically, what are your four faves that are in the Criterion Collection? So I know you prepared a little list for us. Let us, let our listeners get to know you a little bit more. So please tell us what those are. Well, with the help of my lovely fiance, who is the movie the movie expert in the household, I feel like I have been introduced to a world of of cinema. Uh, <laughs> but so far, my journey kind of, I'm, I'm tagging along with, with you all, but so far, the Criterion picks I have enjoyed the most are All That Jazz, Love and Basketball, the single greatest Jock Love story ever made, uh, Chasing Amy, which is in the collection, and <laughs> of course, uh, the one everybody always picks, the one everybody knows, original cast album, colon, company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite statistics is that Kevin Smith has the exact same number of films in the Criterion Collection as Francis Ford Coppola. So, <laughs> just, you know, marinate on that. Well, um, one day we're going to talk about it. Maybe, Rachel, you'll come back. We'll get into the 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 messy the messiness of it all. But me and Rachel are are chasing Amy truthers. Number one, um, chasing Amy defenders while accepting that there's a lot of nuance and complication there. It's nuance. It's a story about a bi woman. Everyone needs to calm down. Yeah. No, I, I really like that movie, even though I recognize it's maybe not the best. But yeah. Anyway, hey, this is not a Kevin Smith podcast, y'all. It's a Criterion <laughs> podcast. So speaking of Criterion, Mackenzie... We got some news. We got some really exciting news. Um, what's going on? Well, the new, you know, we, the 15th of the month has passed, which means we officially know what is entering the collection next month, as well as which films are getting 4K upgrades that were already in the collection, but now will be available to all in a much higher format. Um, so first up, there is a new box set, Jackie Chan, Emergence of a Superstar, a bunch of early, late 70s, early 80s uh, Jackie Chan films is now spy number 1197 with the films Half a Loaf of Kung Fu, which is a objectively hilarious name to me spiritual kung fu the fearless hyena fearless hyena 2 the young master and my lucky stars so early jackie chan stuff as well as ian you've been in a scorsese journey recently spy number 1198 is officially a 4k of martin scorsese's mean streets probably his first like good movie i would say no offense yeah <laughs> breakout movie for sure breakout film for sure and i do think it's worth mentioning that the day that we record today is august 17th it is bobby yes. de niro's birthday oh, the king. happy birthday robbie de niro well, i do love robert de niro what a hunk it was his first uh starring vehicle his first vehicle at all with martin with marty my good friend our, marty our pal marty he's very much a hunk him and harvey Keitel are both hunks in it and I think they're a little in love. That's just me. Mean Streets is a gay love story to me, personally. I've never seen a Martin Scorsese film that doesn't have an element of a gay love story in it. That's the thing. My favorite tag on Letterboxd hashtag, but make it gay. But make it gay. <laughs> yes, that is my, whenever I think a movie should be gay instead, that's my tag for it. Yes. Um, so amazing. Yet another Scorsese we love him. Stay tuned. We got to get some Scorsese on this show. But until then, um, we are also getting spy number 1199, which means we're close to 1200, which is exciting. Um, La Ceremonie by Claude Chabrol, starring uh, Isabelle Huppert, who is obviously one of the most iconic French actresses of all time. 
So that is very exciting. Uh, there's a, a woman's bang. The bangs in this movie? The images alone. These these mm-hmm. tiny, tiny, teeny, tiny little bangs this woman has on the on this poster really, really got me. It has... Yes, yeah, this film has the legend Isabel Huppert herself, but also an old friend of ours, Sandrine Bonaire from Vagabond. Oh my God, that's her. Okay, she's unrecognizable and she's the one who has the bangs. That's how I feel right now with my baby hairs growing out at the top <laughs> of my head right now. I feel like I have teeny, teeny, tiny bangs. It's not often that I see a picture of bangs and ask myself what purpose do these bangs really serve because all the bangs like end where the hairline starts. It's, it's confusing. Um, sorry that I'm just Hmm. insulting our dear friend from Vagabond. Um, but those are the three new additions to the, to the collection. And we have two upgrades, uh, Ian angrily finding out that spine number 549 Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show will now be in 4K right after they just bought it on (laughs) Blu-ray. But I returned it. (laughs) That is coming. As well as uh, deep lore for Criterion Connection fans, uh, Terrence Malick's Days of Heavens by number 409 is coming to the collection of 4K. And that was actually one of the first films that Ian and I watched and just discussed privately together to kind of try out the format of the show and so it's technically the secret first episode of the criterion connection that no one will ever hear uh but yeah that's the updates to the criterion collection for the month of august honestly exciting stuff uh cannot wait to see what they do the following month it's like it's like the mcu over here we get to the end of one announcement and we're just like what's the next one gonna be next yeah (laughs) you finish the movie and terrence malick shuffles out of the shadows (laughs) Terrence Malick I'm will here to return. Join the team. Yeah. <laughs> Martin Scorsese will return. Yeah. Um, you know, another director I'd really love to see continue to get all of his films added is the director we're talking about today, Wes Anderson at Criterion. Where is French Dispatch at Asteroid City? <laughs> Let me know. I want them so bad. Um, but he is a director who has a majority of his films in the collection, and that's something I'm so desperately and wonderfully grateful for. Um, and today we are talking about. Uh, you know, not his first film, his third technically, but uh, definitely I think what people consider to be his first masterpiece, um, and it the film that really exploded his career, and a film that heavily features a very, very, very bad dad, as is the theme of this programming. Uh, so Ian, please bring us into the world of Wes Anderson's Royal Tenenbaums. Three children, Chaz, Margo, and Richie, and then they separated. Chaz started buying real estate in his early teens and seemed to have an almost preternatural understanding of international finance. Margo was a playwright and received a Braverman grant of $50,000 in the ninth grade. Richie was a junior champion tennis player and won the U.S. Nationals three years in a row. Virtually all memory of the brilliance of the young Tenenbaums was subsequently erased by two decades of betrayal, failure, and disaster. The Royal Tenenbaums is a hilarious, touching, and brilliantly stylized study of melancholy and redemption from director Wes Anderson.
Oof, Mackenzie, this is very exciting. Uh, but before we can get to you and I, we have to ask our very lovely and special guest, Rachel. We invited you here because, like, we know that like, this is one of your favorite Wes Andersons, maybe one of your favorite films. Please do enlighten us. But, like, how did you first come to Wes, to the Royal Tenenbaums, and maybe what was that, like, initial inkling of love you had for the film? Like, how did it all begin? I think, embarrassingly, my first uh, foray into Wes Anderson was uh, I was a Tumblr girly, and <laughs> the Tumblr girlies love nothing more than aesthetic. And boy, howdy, can you mind some aesthetic from Wes Anderson's oeuvre? Uh, so I would see, like, just very heartfelt gyp sets on Tumblr of the Royal Tenenbaums. But I was like, I don't know if this is really my thing because, like, I'm not into, like, the kinks or or – I can't even name the bands he uses. The Rolling Stones, Rolling Stones, uh, the Beatles. Who? The sorry, the Who are they? Are they a really underground artist? <laughs> yeah, a really indie <laughs> artist. The Rolling Classically Stones. Classically indie artist, the Rolling Stones. Um, but I kind of like bought into the like Wes Anderson is for pretentious people, and I was at the time mm. trying very hard to prove that I wasn't pretentious, even though I am. Um. And then I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox in high school and loved it so much that I was like, I I want to give like his movies a chance. And I do feel like The Royal Tenenbaums is maybe the movie everybody thinks of. And when you do see people try to parody him, they seem to pull pretty heavily from specifically a Tenenbaum aesthetic. Uh, down to like the fun little outfits and we all live in a crazy house that's very old and stationary and like they are motifs that are used in the other films but it feels like the royal tenements are 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 his are his og archetypes almost mm. and uh i thought i was gonna hate it but i was uh, you know, when you're in college and you're like, I have to do things for fun that I don't think I'm going to find fun to prove that I'm fun. And then you have a lot of fun. <laughs> and from then yeah. I've, I've been very excited to, I think the only one I haven't seen that McKenzie is trying to get me to see is Bottle Rocket, but I've seen the rest of them. And uh, he always manages to surprise me in the ways I'm lulled into a sense of safety by his structure. And then I just get hit like a truck with with all the emotions in his little packages. I love that. <laughs> he does have little packages and yeah, he does seem to lull you into this false sense of security and then just, uh, you know, kind of beat you over the head with it. Even if he doesn't know he's doing it as I will really want to get into later. Um, I don't know if Wes is even aware of like how much he affects people. Um, I think it's just how he communicates. That's what it feels like. And then it feels like, Maybe that's how I process and communicate emotions too. So it's sort of the weird thing of like getting to watch something where I feel like I'm being spoken to in my language. And that's nice. Yep. Uh, words after my own heart, seriously. Um, Mackenzie, it's your turn. How did you come to Wes Anderson and the Royal Tenenbaums? And where did, where did, our, where, where did your love for this quirky little man begin? <laughs> this quirky little man. Yeah, I I wasn't really aware of Wes Anderson growing up or because I wasn't, you know, as into film as in high school or even in college or anything like that. But I, I do like remember when Grand Budapest Hotel was like blowing up. I remember that. I mean, that was just seemed to be at the time his biggest cultural splash, like across 
not just his fans, but like a lot of people were seeing that movie. It obviously got the most like Academy Award attention out of any of his other films. And so I remember that movie existing and being like, oh, that looks interesting. And I didn't know who he was or what his whole thing was. So I had no cynicism towards him. I had no um, baggage, I guess, that some people who are like into movies tend to, I think, have with Wes Anderson for some reason before coming to his films. I think the first thing I ever watched was Fantastic Mr. Fox because Rachel being my fiance was like, I love this movie. I want to show it to you. And I was like, okay. Um, And then I I was frantically pulling up all of my, um, my diary entries um, because I'm pretty sure that beginning, I looked it up September 5th, 2021. I think Rachel was like, I want to show you the Royal Tenenbaums too. I don't know what would have prompted this. Something must have, but that was the first, the second Wes Anderson movie I ever watched. Um, and then I, I was looking it up and from the course from that day to like the 19th of September, like over the course of like a week and a half, I watched every single Wes Anderson movie. I was like, he has like nine. I'm just going to watch all of them. And uh, I fell in love. I, there was only one uh, that I didn't super adore, famously Moonrise Kingdom, which I will give another chance. But um, <laughs> I really, really fell in love with his work. We'll talk more next week. Life Aquatic was the one that I think um, really, really slammed into my soul in a way I didn't expect. Um, and then they've all they've all sort of grown on me in different ways. And again, in two weeks, we'll talk about it. Darjeeling was probably the one that's grown on me the most out of any of the other f- films. And um, we were first, you know, as soon as we could see Asteroid City, we were we were sitting down and watching it. And it was just like he's he's just become my favorite filmmaker because I especially the ones I love the most, like this run really of Tenenbaums, Aquatic, Darjeeling and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Those are the ones I've watched like four times since my first watches of them. Um, And I adore them. And in terms of consistency and like any of his movies, I can put on and enjoy any day of the week and I will show up opening week into anything he releases. Uh, I feel like Wes Anderson, I have to kind of consider him my favorite director because yeah, I love the way he communicates. I love the way he builds worlds. I love his characters. I just love so much about Wes Anderson. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm rambling now. But Ian, I want to know your history. I, I, I am actually a little surprised uh, how far back it goes in, rel- in relative comparison to y'all's. But did, did y'all ever like have DVDs on the shelf growing up that... Well, first of all, did y'all ever have DVDs in the house? Is that like something that you bought or did you rent everything? I had DVDs, but like my, my mom's DVD collection is specific. It's like 90s <laughs> lesbian cinema. So the DVDs I remember are like, if these walls could talk too, but I'm a cheerleader, Gaia with like Angelina Jolie. It was like any movie that had like a gay woman in it from like 1987 to like 2003. That was what was on my DVD shelf at my house. Well, Follow-up question, and to that end, did were there any R-rated ones that y'all were not allowed to watch? I feel like my dad had a section of more violent movies that my brother and I weren't supposed to get into, but I don't know. I don't know. Like, I can't recall any DVDs where I was like, you're not supposed to watch this because this is for adults. This is art for adults. It was just kind of like, I don't know. I feel like Blade was in there and now I'm like, <laughs> what really happens in Blade that I wouldn't have been able to handle? But <laughs> I just my mom did not care what I watched at all. I was watching Austin Powers and playing Grand Theft Auto at like age 10, so, you know. 
Fair enough. I mean, but you know, for myself, a little bit for you, Rachel, and for everybody out there who had those R-rated movies, maybe up on a higher shelf, uh, these films that you weren't allowed to watch. For me, those films were, you know, Johnny Depp in Blow, um, Al Pacino and Johnny Depp in Donnie Brasco. I don't know why those are the other two that come to mind. But yeah, somewhat more violent, more sexually explicit films. But the one that was also up there was The Royal Tenenbaums. And mm. I remember it very specifically being the Criterion DVD. So theoretically, it's the very first Criterion film I ever, you know, by virtue of proximity to it, owned. Uh, and it was, you know, it was in this, you know, cardboard hard sleeve and it was a double vhs sorry it was a double dvd so it was thicker than all the other ones and it had this really you know kind of uh naive and childlike illustration on the front um and yeah i just remember it being really interesting i used to pull that dvd down all the time and just look at it i was a good kid so i never watched it but you know, I would, I would just kind of hold it. And it was something that got me interested in watching movies that were not necessarily made for me as a child. Uh, I was like really interested in seeing it. It also got me interested in physical media because it was like different than everything else. But inevitably, I do get to watch it at a certain point. I do think before I turn 17 because they weren't that strict of parents, my mom and dad. And um, I just remember being really blown over by it. Just the colors. Uh I love how Rachel put it earlier, like the the little uh, compartments or just like packages that, you know, Wes was creating. Um, and I remember getting really interested in the likes of Steven Spielberg and David Fincher at that age. And Wes was also just a director who was like, oh, this is clearly like an author. This is clearly somebody with a vision. Like there are choices being made. It was a film that awakened me to the fact that like films didn't just fall down from heaven people made them and people made choices when making them. Um, and yeah, I just got really obsessed with Wes Anderson from that point on. I saw every movie uh, starting with um, Moonrise Kingdom that came out, <laughs> which was funny because, you know, I, I've come around on that film unlike you, Mackenzie, but I was not a fan of it initially either. Um, so that started my, you know, sincere and earnest relationship with Wes that you have now where it's like day and date, I'm going to show up at the movie theater for you you're one of my guys. Um, yeah. And like, I think the last thing I want to mention before we get into the film in a larger context is like, he's one of my favorite directors, but I always forget about him for like some reason, you know, people ask me like, who are your favorite filmmakers? I immediately say, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, Salish Kiyama, um, you know, these people who are very artsy and very Titanic in the contemporary cinematic landscape. I don't know. Wes just seems to have more broad appeal and is a little bit more uh, for mass audiences that I just kind of forget about him. Uh, and that's a shame because he is one of my favorites. And I'm so happy that we're talking about him today. He's cozy. He's cozy. Yeah, it's funny that you say he's more of a mass audience thing because I feel like, at least with Asteroid City, it felt like anyone who like wasn't really into his stuff was just like, what is this stupid movie? Like, It seems like he's not as much of a mass... I feel like Grand Budapest was his mass appeal, and and then since then he's struggled to get. Man, I I liked French Dispatch, but that movie got so much hate for some reason, and I I feel like he's he doesn't have as broad of an appeal as I think some of us think he does. If that makes sense, maybe not broad appeal, but like that instant 
recognizability. Yeah. yeah, like you see something that Wes Anderson has made and you know that Wes Anderson is the person who definitely made it. So maybe it's not even that people are like, we love this guy, although there was a period of time bolstered by, I think, his soundtracks and his interests in kind of 60s aesthetic or 70s aesthetic, the specificity where people were like, cool people like Wes Anderson. Mm. So I don't know. Well, I, I think it's really theories. interesting in the films that we're going to talk about, his like, you know, his like, I, I, I really don't want to put too fine a point on like what is Wes Anderson's best films or what are his quote unquote worst films or like what's his best era. Like, but in a way, this is somewhat of his golden era for that, what we're like kind of talking around, his mainstream accessibility. Like, because these films were still really interesting aesthetics, really nostalgic, and the soundtracks were rock and pop music from the mid century. And so I think they had the most broad appeal that they ever had at that time. And it wasn't until Grand Budapest where he started to abandon the uh, popular music and favor more orchestral scores and then also get a little bit more into miniatures and stop motion mm -hmm. as being fully integrated into the filmmaking as opposed to something like y'all's one of y'all's favorites, Fantastic Mr. Fox, where the stop motion just is the film. Now he's taking those elements and putting them into the features and integrating them throughout. Um, but... Anyway, I just think the the films that we're going to be talking about, you know, Boot, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, and Darjeeling, those are like, I think, when he was at his most popular. And, you know, not to spoil and jump ahead, but sadly, I think we might be ending on a bit of a, a bummer because that film is kind of what I think was a bomb for him. Now, we love it, but it was not it was not very well received. But this one kind of was, even if it didn't make a lot of money. Um getting all the histrionics here it's like getting very much into the context and i know that's not what we normally do oh well hmm i mean where to start it feels like the reason why i like wes anderson is because context is everything if that makes sense like you have to i know that this is all movies but you have to watch the whole movie to get to the moment so if we want to start big picture uh, I've watched this movie several times and every time I have a great time with it. But this time I was really struck by how much of like a fantasy on second chances it is. Mm. How there just seem to be so many moments where like you just you see it happen twice. The big ones being like Royal is getting a second chance. He says he's dying. He's not really because he's an asshole and everybody gets a second chance to kind of come to terms with the father and the husband. He wasn't. And the father and husband and grandfather, he is. And then he does die. And I don't think that everybody would have been able to reach the same emotional place had his first false near-death experience been real but then you also have little things like the kids kind of starting over their lives at the end kids they're in their 30s but kids uh margot writes another play and her dad comes to see it and he seems to really engage with it this time as opposed to when we see her first play she wrote as a child he's like i didn't like it it was a bunch of kids in costumes you're like she's plus 11 go to hell uh, Richie starts teaching tennis after a debilitating public humiliation during a professional tennis match. And you see Eli like go to rehab after crashing his car into a wedding. And even with the wedding, you see like Ethelene has found a second love. 
And so has Henry, who lost his wife. They've both found a second love in their lives, and they have the first disastrous wedding, and then the second wedding in the in the courthouse, where maybe it is not what they hoped for, but they get to do it. And it was it's like both, I feel like it balances the reality of second chances. We're like, no, Richie's not gonna go back to being a professional tennis star live in the high life or whatever. He teaches kids now. It's not as glamorous, but he's happy. And there is that like understanding that like this is also his second chance at life because he survived his attempt on his own life. So now he gets to like readjust to what he actually wants as opposed to maybe what he wanted or was expected to want as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little fantasy on second chances. I don't know. I really like it. You got me... And you got me thinking about my favorite character now. It was Chaz. Chaz, yes, he's yeah. mine too. Yeah. And Chaz is, I think, so interesting because he's experienced like the most, I think, relatable of loss of anyone mm-hmm. in the film. Like he's lost his loved one. He's lost the mother of his children. He's lost his wife. And he also has a shitty relationship with his father. And it's everybody has a really complicated relationship with Royal in the film. I mean, there's no question, but Chaz has like the most interesting and again, relatable relationship to his father. To me, I don't have that kind of relationship with my father, but I do have complicated relationships with both my parents. And I think that the way in which you're talking about this fantasy on second chances in which he gets to reconnect with his father, find a deep connection with his father by the time they are, you know, ending this film, they are riding off of the back of garbage trucks together and smiling together. And not only that, but you do see in this film that the the sins of his father are repeating themselves within him. He is starting to alienate his children because of like the way that he feels betrayed by her, by the world, by life, um, losing his, you know, losing his wife. Uh, but by the end of it, he seems to have kind of realized what he was doing to his kids and is like eased up a little bit, relaxed a little bit more. And is also trying to maybe stamp out that generational trauma. Um, yeah, no, I, I really love the way you put that. It got me thinking about him a little bit. And I just love that character and that aspect of this film. He's my favorite. I think he's the less showy of the siblings. I agree. But I also think it's a really well-written breakdown of what happens sometimes in families because Richie is absolutely the mediator. He is all – in every scene, he's like, oh, but like – what if he's really sick or like I couldn't leave him out on the street or like everybody calm down. And he's also the one holding in like this massive amount of self-inflicted pressure and hurt that then he ultimately can't control. And then you have Margo and Margo's whole deal is like, I'm just not even going to be here. (laughs) I'm going to remove myself from the situation. And I do in past viewings, I've definitely related more to Richie as a mediator. I felt like that is my role, I put myself in that role because I feel like I was sort of raised to be the person going like, well, hang on, let's consider everyone's perspective, which is not a an unhealthy way to live your life, but it can lead to some dysfunction as this film shows. And this time I really related to Chaz because from the get-go, Chaz is like, I don't buy your bullshit. I don't want any part of this. You don't remember who my dead wife is. What it like, why, why am I, why do I owe you a relationship when you don't even know about the most devastating thing that's happened to me this year, perhaps my whole life. 
Yeah, Chaz, I think, is my favorite character. And he grew- and I think Ben Stiller's performance is phenomenal here. And it makes me sad that he's not in more films of Wes's. Because, like, I-, I one of my reviews is there's so many first-time actors, first and only-time actors in Wes's oeuvre. Uh, you know, Danny Glover, Ben Stiller, people who are giving amazing performances, and I wish they would come back. Um, but before we get to the actors, I do want to just agree with everything you both said. There's something I love specifically about these three films that we're going to talk about. Is that, like, a through line, I think, between all three of them is obviously, but all of them deal with grief in different ways. And all of them deal with people who, through grief or through trauma, have their lives changed in ways they didn't anticipate. And then they have to sort of figure out a new normal, a new way of living, a new way of letting go of that baggage, right? Maybe to a literal sense in the Darjeeling Limited. And I think that's why these three really resonate with me, because I think I'm a person who um just on my day-to-day I, I I live with a lot of grief just sort of sitting inside of me a lot and like I haven't quite figured out everything I want to be and what I want to do you know with my life now and I I think that's why I love these films is because I I do feel like these characters they they also don't know they also feel like sure they they figure it out by the end but like I don't know the lives we imagine for ourselves are almost never the lives we're actually going to lead. And I think that that's what a lot of Wes Anderson's characters have to learn. And, you know, I, I, again, like, I think that's why for me, his films are so resonant because those are just such universally relatable themes of just like learning how to live, learning how, like growing up, isn't you hit a certain age and then you're a grown up growing up is, is, is your life changes over and over and over again as you continue to, experience life and as things continue to happen to you and as trauma and grief continues to 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 slam on you from all sides you just have to you have to adapt you have to learn you have to change and you have to keep moving and uh i think that's why i like these films a lot and i think that that i don't know like what you said to me like this the idea of second chances like that's life right life is is not only getting those second chances granted to you through luck but also being able to take that by the reins and say like, I deserve this and I'm going to go for something I want. I, my first marriage was shit. I really would love to be with this person who cares about me or I was in a, I hit rock bottom. Maybe I continue my passion through teaching children. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's about, it's, it's, there's also a level of choice there that I think is beautiful and admirable and, um, it gives me with, gives me hope, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you think about Mordecai, the Richie's pet hawk, and how, like, there is that through line of, like, Richie's, like, I, I think this hawk should be free, whatever. Um, but then Mordecai comes back, and he's got white feathers now, and there's sort of this question of, like, is this the same bird? But then it's also positive, like, maybe Mordecai just molted. <laughs> maybe Mordecai just quite literally grew out of something and needed to change and now he's able to come back whereas when we meet the kids at the beginning they're all refusing to acknowledge the ways in which they're struggling and so they literally go back home and go back to their childhood bedrooms and they fall back into the patterns you can definitely tell are are childhood habits of like Margot does this and Richie does this and the fact that Chaz is a father (laughs) really doesn't seem to occur to any of them. I don't think we see any of the siblings really interact with Ari and Uzi until Richie at the end, as 
tennis teacher is is helping to teach them. And I think that's very funny that like by the end of the film, they've decided to grow up. And so you have hope that maybe they won't make the same mistakes that Royal in particular made because Royal like refused to grow up until, you know, like six months before his untimely death. I mean, I think people are terrified of change. I mean, change is scary. Change is a very it can be a very like overwhelming process. And I think that like we're seeing characters in this film who are very averse to change. And again, I, you know, I do think that this is going to be a through line between all three of these films. Um, but like life is changing. Life is ever evolving and you have to change with it or you, you, you fall behind. It's Ian and I both watched come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, Robert, Bobby Altman, Bobby Alts. And I'm only bringing that up because to me, I think a beautiful part of that film is that it is about how much living in the past can kill us, how much living in the past and idolizing the things that came before us in the good old days and a time in which we believe we remember we were happier, even though we maybe might not have actually been happier. The more we obsess over the past and, and cling to something that is unmoving uh, the less we can actually face what's in front of us and our future. And like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that there's that post that's been going around of like to, to, to be loved is to be changed. And I think that that's the more positive part to look at because like Mordecai molted, he was loved and he changed and he, he did what he needed to do and he came back to where he could continue to find that love. And, and yeah, I think that that's something that I, I agree. It's beautiful. This, you have to learn how to change and evolve along with your own life or else you'll get left behind. I watched this movie so many times in my life that for the first time ever, I decided to rewatch it for this podcast with the commentary on. Mm. And so I listened to Wes's commentary and what was so fascinating and interesting to me is that he was constantly saying like, I don't know why I did that. Or, I didn't mean to do that. Or like, I didn't really think that much about it, but like you both like Mackenzie, you've said with the Darjeeling limited, like literal baggage is let go of in that film. Rachel, you're saying with like, they regress back to their childhood state literally by coming back home and all being under the same roof for the first time in 20 years. His themes are so on the nose, but not in a way that is pointed. Um, it's, it is somewhat naive, but it is so potent and poignant at the same time uh, because it's coming from within. It's coming from underneath. I don't think he's lying or playing coy when he says, I didn't, I guess I just, you know, was dealing with that or maybe that was something that was on my mind, but I didn't really uh, intellectualize it at the time. And the things that we're kind of talking about, which I think this film is really about is like, these are three people, the kids that are like interested development. Like they have never like broken outside the confines of the greatness they achieved at a young age for some just wild reason. These three geniuses um, but it's also about nostalgia and like not not like the idea and concept that we have of nostalgia, like literally what nostalgia is is like a condition where regressing back into the past painfully with deep sorrow. Mm-hmm. Um like not to get like super technical here, but like in when nostalgia was like coined it just meant like a sentimental longing of wistful affection for the past, usually to the detriment of one's own happiness. <laughs> um, that's like the original textbook definition of nostalgia. Um, and I just, I always am hearing, and I'm sure we'll get into this 
maybe this episode, maybe with with our guest on the Life Aquatic episode a little bit more. But there's this constant, constant media cycle where it's just Wes Anderson is all you know surface level aesthetics. It's all style. It's no substance. And this is something I know Mackenzie and I have discussed and we hate it. And it always kind of boils down to like, Wes is just obsessed and he loves nostalgia. I don't think Wes is obsessed with nostalgia. I think this movie clearly shows that he's interested in it and he's interested why people fall into it. Like what causes nostalgia? What causes a desperation for the past to the detriment of your own health? Like, I think he's using nostalgic elements to tell a really rich story about how harmful it is to live in the past and regress and not molt, you know, not shed those old feathers. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because that immediately made the connection for me that what Richie is so desperately trying to do and the really devastating needle oh, in the hay, yeah. I think he's trying to molt. Get rid of those old feathers. He cuts off the he takes off the tennis headband that he's been wearing the entire time. Oh, that's so sad. That's a really – see, and it's like you – it's not like an on-the-nose beating you over the head metaphor, but it is there. And, and yeah, no, me and Kev went off on our Asteroid City episode about the style over <laughs> substance people because the substance is there. I think people put their walls up because they are cynical about Wes Anderson's work because I do think it is so deeply genuine that maybe it may – and in, in the facade, it still manages to be – so endearingly genuine and close to the heart and I think maybe that makes people nervous I don't know I've never understood that because there are so many moments in all of his films that uh totally gut me and that emotion is why I love these movies the it's I like do. every time yeah I'm not a crier I don't cry at movies but every time Chaz said I've I've had a rough year dad it really it hurts my cry. feelings Rachel I kid you not I watch this with the commentary on and Wes speaks over that whole moment and I still cried my eyes out. The like trifecta for me is I've had a rough year, dad. I wonder if it remembers me and I think I still have a bit of healing to do. And those are all the films we're discussing because these really are some of my favorite Wes Anderson films. And that's like the trifecta of like Wes Anderson punching me in the mouth (laughs) with, with, with emotion. And I love it every time. But the thing is, like, it's it goes back to, like, it feels like the movie lets me process and feel emotions the way that, like, I am most comfortable doing so. I can remember watching Titanic at sleepovers mm-hmm. and everyone else around me was, like, bawling. And I was like, I feel like I'm being led to this uh, river and I refuse to drink. I will. I know it was sad in real life. And the fact that it's sad in real life makes me even less inclined to cry about this. You guys can be sad about Jack and Rose. I don't care if there was room on the door or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, I don't know. Like, the movie just kind of lets you sit with it. And like the barriers are up and the barriers are so intentional and the structure is so rigid in places so that when finally there's that that flexibility, when those little peaks of like emotion that just won't fit in the structure are there, like it it just hits you. There is a line exchange that I hadn't really zoomed in on until this watch between Henry and Ethelene where Henry is doing his best in his like very I think Henry and Chaz are interesting foils those very numbers based accountant uh widows people yeah widows yeah 
or, or widowers, whatever gender. Um, but like to the point where Henry's book is entitled Accounting for Everything, which is like Chaz's whole character. <laughs> but he's trying to explain to Ethelian, like, I think at this point it would probably make more sense um, looking at the taxes for us to... Uh... It would probably be advantageous for your marital status to be legally established as single in light of the circumstances. What do you mean? I mean for tax purposes. But I thought... Ethelene. Yes? Will you marry me? I... I love you. Uh, did you already know that? No, I didn't. Since her separation from her husband, she had had many suitors. But had not considered a single one until this moment. This isn't really a tax issue, is it? That's true. Uh, I don't know why I put it that way. Let me think about it, Henry. Ethelene is like, yeah, yeah. And then she goes, this isn't really a tax issue. And he says, no, I don't know why I put it that way. <laughs> And it is that thing of like really desperately trying to use logic to communicate an emotional need when like sometimes there's a silly little overlap and sometimes you just have to say like, I love you and I want to marry you, please, please, please. Even though my wife died and I was sad about it, I haven't asked my son, but I love being around you and it would also make our taxes less complicated. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the moments like that are actually so human where you get bogged down in the kind of minutia of the dialogue and also the ornaments that West likes to put on his films. And he said as much in the commentary, which I found very interesting. He said, I like to play around with these things. I like to live inside these little trinkets and <laughs> these sets and stuff. So, but what you're saying, Rachel, and like honing in on that specific, like, moment in the film reminds me of like something you said at the very beginning of our conversation it's like maybe that's just how he communicates when we we're talking about like the aesthetics um and it like it just it falls right into line with what i was bringing up about how west says like i don't know maybe yeah I, I didn't think about it that way it's just like he just speaks so earnestly and with so much humanity inside these snow globes which i think it makes for a delightful film but also just incredibly raw human moments like the one that you're referencing the other one that comes to mind is one we're not going to really talk about in depth on this you know mini series we're doing but when gustav h uh, is going on his little soliloquy on the train and just mm. gets feels defeated and it's like man fuck it you know it's just these moments of like unfiltered humanity that come out after people get exhausted by the wes anderson of it all but at the after the exhaustion, it's still Wes Anderson. I think it's a really normal experience to be expected to play a role and to feel that all the time, whether that's like, I'm a child prodigy and I'm now like in my 30s, but I'm a, I'm a, my whole identity is around the fact that when I was 14, I wrote a play and some people liked it. My dad didn't, but some people liked it. <laughs> yeah. um, and like you, you hold to these, to these roles and you like, try and glue down your baby feathers because you just don't want to change. And at some point, like you do have to be like, fuck it. 
<laughs> this yeah. is how I'm like actually feeling. And I think it's funny because the ones that hit me hardest are definitely the smaller moments. I've had a rough year, dad, is I like I feel like I feel like Wes Anderson when I talked to my therapist about this, because I'm like, have you seen this film? Have you seen this moment? That's what I'm feeling. I don't know how to tell you in words in my words how I'm feeling, but if I know that if you feel what I feel in that moment, then then you will understand what I'm trying to communicate. Which also feels like if you will understand how it feels for me when I hear this Nico song, <laughs> then you will know exactly what this character is feeling when I combine it with like tasteful slow-mo and Gwyneth Paltrow wearing just as much eyeliner as humanly possible. I like it's like through references you're able it's like it's like the I like yeah, I have to make a collage. I can't just say what I'm feeling because the words are not I how do you describe the color green? Like I need I need more. I need as many influences as possible. I have to web it out in this giant constellation and then maybe you will understand the enormity of what I'm trying to communicate to you. That needle drop in that moment is one of the greatest moments in Wes's just whole beautiful. filmography. I mean, you when I see Margot in slow motion and I hear that Nico song that makes me cry every time I hear it, just from the lyrics. I mean, the lyrics are just so sad of that song. I see her walking towards me, the viewer, at directly yeah. at the camera, and I feel like Richie. Like, I see how much I love her. You know what I mean? Like, you really feel like you're a Richie in that moment. It's just, I don't know. I just, I, I've never seen the detriment to Wes's work ever, and so it blows my mind to hear people who don't dig it though I know it's totally fine to not like his work and to, to have those other opinions. But like, I just think it is so stunning and so beautiful and so heartfelt and so um, well-crafted and lovingly crafted in a way that like, I feel so held and loved when I watch his films. Oh boy. I'm sorry, Mackenzie, you made a minor mistake. That is one of the best moments in cinema. That's true. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and boy, when we talk about the needle drop, Oh, in Life Aquatic next week, I'm going to be a puddle of tears. Uh. I do feel like uh, maybe part of what, because what got drilled into my head, I went to school for theater. Sorry, everyone. I'll mention on every hey, podcast I guest on till I die. Uh, but like what they try to drill into your head while also, I don't know. They tell you like, you have to get back to play. It's called play for a reason. You're doing a play. You have to tap into like your ability to like be a child to be sitting alone in a sandbox coming up with entire worlds, entire genealogies. And I think it's, I also, I don't know. He directs kids really well. He seems to understand children really well. And I was also struck by the part where Chaz moves his, little family back home behaving like a child himself and like okay mom i'm back um my house wasn't good so i'm here now and he sets his kids up and he walks into the hallway and immediately walks back in and is like you know what i think i'll just sleep in here tonight puts his sleeping bag down and like as he is there's no pause as he's doing this i think it's ari who is in the top bunk, he climbs down and he lays down next to his dad on the sleeping bag and Chaz puts his hands behind his head and Ari mirrors him. And it's just such a succinct relationship, a succinct summary of like both the relationship between Chaz and Ari in the wake of his wife and his mother's death, but also Chaz and Royal. 
his characters are so fleshed out that they don't need to like do much to show such a depth like that like that moment gives you so much depth to both of those characters all three of those kids the way these kids interact with their dad and like yeah like i think that's another reason why i love because yeah i mean obviously you know take a shot every time i say it at the theater like i love the framing devices i talked about about this a lot with the asteroid city episode i love the play framing device i love the book device here i love the play device and rushmore like i love his framing devices because there is a theatricality to them and i think because of that it, it lends itself to this this character depth because like you can like especially with tenenbaums the the character work in this film is so amazing the performances are amazing in this movie and like you see that like you see so much history like like Gwyneth Paltrow who is not an actress who generally like comes to my mind as like an actress I love is like stunning in this film to me because every like look Margot gives you see just a world of a history of trauma and you see her kind of bubbling it's like right below her eyes these emotions that bubble within her that she continually sort of keeps still waters on and like i it's just like all the characters feel so well drawn out and so yeah they're just so deep and interesting and i think that's what is great about wes anderson films is because part of the structure is just how amazing these actors and characters are that they get to just like exist and they're interesting on their own yeah not to keep on being the commentary girly here but uh the he talks about this he talks about how you really can't get away with starting a film so late in the film. He doesn't. He says that the story of this film doesn't really start, and he's right until like thirty minute mark, because mm-hmm. of that framing device of the 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 uh, wide breadth he's giving these characters to kind of just color the pages of the screen. And Mackenzie, I couldn't agree with you more that the framing devices that Wes use are always amazing, always phenomenally deployed, but also always essential. Like they have thematic um purpose in his films and in this film the purpose is that we get to know these characters and love them and connect with them and really kind of understand them before we're off to the races with what the actual drama is um it also just like sounds looks and feels so cool like Mm -hmm. alec baldwin the narrator the jd salinger influence like it's all wes understands control of tone so much more than the average contemporary director much less the average contemporary you know auteur like but no yeah that's something i love about wes is that his influence has clearly run so deep like you can see i mean you know with his most recent film like obviously he's super inspired by that acting era of the the 50s with Eli kazan and the the actor studio and that type of sort of that type of theater is kind of what inspired that but i think you know even here like you he just I, I love that he wears his influences on his sleeve right like these kind of french new wave influences that he has and like he is very open about the 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 cinema history that he's pulling from when he creates his work and i would i love that like i understand again how people can maybe be a little like tired of his shtick uh though i hate to call it that um but i, I love a director that wears his influences so openly and i would yeah i would much rather have someone with a very clear and distinct vision than someone who is is just trying to put a script on camera and doesn't really have a point of view about it. Um, yeah. For a director that doesn't play it very cool at all, <laughs> he gets accused of distance, which is, I, 
I understand how people come to that conclusion and I'm not going to tell anybody they're wrong. I'm not here to yuck anybody's yum, even if your yum is my yuck. Um, (laughs) But like he's so enthusiastic about what he's pulling from. He Watching his films, my joke is that like drop the reading list. If you're going to do something, give me a reading list. I would love to know all of the sources you're pulling from. I would love to have something to use your art as a jumping off point. And I think all of his films lean really hard into that. Like you don't have to search all that hard to be like, oh, Raleigh Sinclair is like Oliver Sacks. Okay, well, who is Oliver Sacks? And like, how does the fact that he's been chosen to play this hapless cuckold like what's going on there (laughs) yeah no i mean yeah i mean you got obviously we've talked about her but nico's in there um and also like this is like clearly an homage to the magnificent ambersons the the uh, orson welles film um van like jd salinger's written all over this thing like yeah i love that drop the reading list wes man can you imagine if wes dropped like a letterbox and a goods reads list for every film that would be my I'd dream. Watch it all. That is my dream. <laughs> That'd be amazing. He does reference. <laughs> I I, I got to drop this in for our dear friend uh, Guti of the Real Latinos podcast. But I was texting this to Mackenzie last night or yesterday afternoon. Uh, the first thing Wes drops on the Criterion commentary is that you know the look of the film. I was just really inspired by Paul and Pressburger and the Red Shoes. He like hmm. specifically calls out the Red Shoes like as like a huge inspiration on the Technicolor look of this film, which I thought was really interesting. That's so funny because the Red Shoes says so many interesting things about like being dedicated to your craft. Mm-hmm. And this film feels like a little answer to it and a little like parallel in that like these kids are told at a young age, you're good at this thing, do that thing until you die. I Even to the point where like presumably to pay bills, I don't really know Ethelene's financial situation, although they do seem vaguely upper middle class yeah. in the way that a lot of Wes Anderson characters do. Uh, Ethelene like has to exploit that genius a bit and be like, this is how you raise a family of geniuses. I'm going to write a book and we're going to do press conferences. And like, that's not a normal experience for a child. And it infects even poor Eli who like, Seems to have been a relatively normal, if very lonely child who saw the cool neighbors next door and was like, I want to be that. And so I'm going to go into adulthood and I'm going to send you my grades, not my mom, but I wish you were my mom. And I'm going to send you these reviews. And like, Margo, you like jumped to me not being a genius really quickly. Like, do you want to talk about that? (laughs) And like, I don't know. It's that sweet thing of like, I'm very fond of films, especially created by like people who are very invested in their craft. You get the sense that Wes Anderson uh, can relate. But like, yeah, Richie's good at tennis and Margo's good at plays and Chaz is good at accounting. And yet life still happens to them. I think a lot of people can relate to that gifted kid. Yeah upbringing of like (laughs) i was really smart as a kid and i like knew all of the greek gods and goddesses and my mother would like tout me out in front of her friends and be like look how smart my kid is because she can do this thing and like you know i was probably just autistic and like and like a weird (laughs) little kid and like i was raised to think i was special and interesting and i do think i am a special and interesting person you are but to myself you know what i mean like not in like the like i'm a you know like 
not in a way that I'm attempting to be full of myself, but in a way that like, I think we all should care about ourselves a little bit more and be sweeter to ourselves. But like, you know, I do think that a lot of us were, can relate to that idea of feeling like we were quote unquote gifted kids growing up. And that like, when you get to adulthood and the real world hits you, especially as a millennial where a millennial and, gen- and, 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 you know, younger generations where like the world is actively not built to serve us and our futures uh, it, it is, it does kind of hit you in the face really hard. And I think that's another reason why maybe people relate to these characters. I know it's a big reason why I relate to these characters. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think my it's my silly little story. Oh, you go. I was just going to, I think it's a huge reason why this is his most beloved film. Why Margot and Richie are beloved Halloween costumes. <laughs> yes. I think that this is like, this is what cemented him, even though, like I said, it didn't make a lot of money. It's, it is one of the most popular cult classics for our generation because of exactly what is being talked about right now. Like the world is not made for you. And we were told as kids that it was Mm -hmm. and that we were these smart, gifted, brilliant little youngins. Uh, And I just like, I, 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 I cop to it. I am a product of arrested development. I love that term, but like, it's true. Like, it's just like, I'm still, I still feel so stuck in those ways and also as an adult why i was talking why Chaz is my favorite i feel like the only way that i can have some semblance of control is if i am always going 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 i you know make sure that everybody is safe i make sure that everybody is cared for and you know and i don't even sleep i just put my hands behind my back and stare at the ceiling it's like i don't know i i just know that i can relate so heavily to these characters and i'm not uh naive to the fact that like I so many people are like me and I am so like so many people uh, and I get why these characters out of all of Wes's characters are so beloved and just yeah I I love them I I agree with all that and I think that like when you're a child and you are told you're really good at this you could do this for a living why as like a five-year-old or 10-year-old would you be like, actually, I think that what I want and my priorities will shift as I age and eventually I will look for other ways to be happy in life. I decided when I was four that I was going to be an actor. I told my parents, this is what I want to do. And to their credit, they like a lot of parents I think would have been like, let's find a plan B. But my parents didn't. I'm not an actor now. I was really good. (laughs) But like... I mean, the thing is like, okay, all right, all right. I'm not, I'm not saying that to be like, and I was actually a didn't bomb myself <laughs> pulling an Eli on phone, <laughs> Charlie Rose being like, um, and, um, <laughs> that sequence made me laugh very hard this time. Yeah, it's good. But I think like when you're little, you get told some things that are, I think in most cases, very benevol- benevolently meant. There's no real harm meant. And I think you see a version of it that is actively harmful with Royal in particular. And even Ethelene, even though she's definitely the she's the parent that has it more together, the two, of like, just do this one thing. Just do this one thing and make money off of it. Uh, this is your art. This is your passion. And like, it breaks my heart seeing Richie's paintings at the voiceover being like, he never really progressed. <laughs> But, like, aside from the fact that that is, like, a little tell that, like, this guy's in love with his adopted sister and we're not going to shut up about how she's adopted. So this is, you, feel less you know, weird. money, but not as money yeah. as it could be. 
But like that was clearly an activity he enjoyed and loved. But tennis was his thing. He was tennis guy. And, and then what happens that always happens like the commentators at that fateful match where he looks over and realizes that yeah again his adopted sister married someone who was not related to her and it threw him for a real loop <laughs> you know he's he's sitting down on the court he's taking off uh one of his shoes he appears to be crying like it's a movie that is so much about identity and i think at the end, they've all kind of decided that their identity is we're a family and not in the way that Royal really wanted. Like it it always I always I it hits me that like they're they're not the tenant bombs, they're the royal tenant bombs. And he had these ideas for who his children were going to be. And then they grew up and were people. And that was disappointing to him. Even from a distance, he didn't even have to deal with the like on the ground messiness that Ethelene probably did as the parent who was there. But he comes back and he's like, I don't know. He's it's he was always this way. He was always dismissive of the things that made them feel more like them. And then they're in their 30s and still like trying to be like, Dad, if if I put down all of my defenses and if I really try and be who I am right now are you still gonna love me you just feel like the entire movie is like people just feeling like are you still gonna love me is about to come out of their mouth and they have to do anything to prevent that eventuality like it's gonna happen they're gonna say but do you still love me but do you still love me they're like no 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 no, no. I'm gonna lock myself in the bathroom I'm gonna (laughs) I'm gonna kill myself (laughs) I'm gonna get on this bus I'm gonna like I will do anything to avoid this because that's the question that's been haunting me for the entirety of my life. And I don't know that any of them until the end maybe really trust that Royal is going to say, of course, kiddo. Of course I love you. I don't even know if he knew he would say that too until... Well, there's that line, the line where like, he's like, I, I've really enjoyed this. And then the narrator's like, immediately after making the statement, Royal realized it was yeah. true. You can stay there. We'll be right back. Can I say something to you, Henry? Okay. I've always been considered an asshole for about as long as I can remember. Uh, that's just my style. But I'd really feel blue if I didn't think you were going to forgive me. I don't think you're an asshole, Royal. I just think you're kind of a son of a bitch. Well, I really appreciate that. Could you let us in your backyard, ma'am? We've got a couple boys back there. I think he may have broken an ankle. Well, that's not terribly serious, is it? Do you have an alternate? No. Ready? Are there priests on call? Why don't you bring the car around on At which point I apparently lost control of the vehicle, smashed it in the house, and killed that poor dog. You're Eli Cash. Yes, indeed I am. I love your work. Oh, how sweet of you to say. I think he's part mutt. Uh, what kind of papers do you have for it? Spark book. Sip. Sip. Good boy. Put this on. <laughs> What's so funny, Dudley? You look great. Can you see out of it? Not really. Uh-huh. Minor corneal damage. Page me if it spreads to the other eye. 
But these aren't structure-bearing elements, Dad. It doesn't matter. It's still best to file an force majeure and recoup the deductible. You boys come up here with me. But Buckley's still under there. I know. But there's nothing we can do for him at the moment. I got you a new dog for the boys. I just bought him. You did? Sorry I let you down, Chaz. All of you. Uh, I've been trying to make it up to you. What's his name? Sparkplug. Thank you. You're welcome. I've had a rough year, Dad. I know you have, Chazzy. Well, um, that Mackenzie, that that tape is kind of running out. I know, I so know. Before I can't we get to like it, our final little by, I'm like, oh no, we've been talked about so much. There's still more to talk about. I I, I want to talk more about Pagoda. I want to talk more about you know. Honestly, I could talk on and on about Chaz, uh, but. Let's provide the opportunity for that. Before we get into our final soliloquies about our love for this movie, has anybody got any quick hits, any fun little notes that they wanted to throw out to the group? Royal's problem is absolutely that he is uh, not scared enough of death. He does not respect death, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's his problem. I like that. Um, My favorite. Uh, I focused really uh, heavily on uh, Eli <laughs> this round. Did y'all know? <laughs> y'all notice my name? Yes. Do you send my mother your clippings? And he does. He just wants Edley to... Again, do you love me? Do you love me, though? Do you love me for me? Do you love me for me? Rachel, like, I don't know why the opening... I felt like I had never seen it before. I was like, did I just ignore the opening? And it was really the first time I was absorbing Eli as a kid and that he lived with his grandmother in a clearly, like, you know, less fancy apartment. I guess I was getting the impression that maybe he was orphaned. If I missed that line confirming that, I you know i'm so sorry Wes, but like i got the impression he was possibly an orphan if he was living with just his grandmother and so yeah maybe seeing i know at least i you know was raised by a single mother uh no dad in my life no siblings and i always had a weird yearning for people with big families like i would see people with like family traditional family units or siblings and um i would occasionally have a yearning for that so i definitely see i see eli as that sort of uh i that that he had probably the closest upbringing to my personal upbringing and so i definitely see that within him of like that that yearning that you feel like you're abnormal because you're not a part of this family but like good lord this family is also abnormal (laughs) because we're all fucked up we're all just fucked up i think the only thing we didn't really mention that you know i mean obviously all the performers are amazing we didn't get deep into the performers but i mean they're all phenomenal the only thing that's like in my notes that we didn't mention once that i did write Margot, bisexual icon this is the mm. first time <laughs> Wes will dip his little toesies into bisexuality yeah. in his films, which will come back next week, I think, to kind of hilarious. Uh, it cracks me always. up that he dips his toe into like bisexuality and like, ooh, Jewishness. I don't know. The life of Royals, like half Hebrew, but mm-hmm. raised, I think raised Catholic. I don't know, though. <laughs> I was like, that's a wildly interesting way to put that. And I think 
it hit me this time that like Royal's mom haunts a lot of this narrative too. Mm. I was, you know, the titular bad dad of our bad dad trilogy event. <laughs> um, I, I, I was telling Rachel on this watch. I found it very interesting that like him not knowing Margot's middle name is sort of his turning point of like, Oh, I need to get my shit together. And yeah, the fact that it's his mother's name feels very important to that. Yeah. And he's like really touched that his daughter's middle name is his mother's name. Like, and hits it's him like, that he does not know yeah. this person. Yeah. It's been that way the whole time. He makes an amazing yeah. turn as a character. I mean, I think I think this is an amazing performance from him and, and and really just a great, great character. Like, you love to hate him. Same with, honestly, Steve next week. Like, he's a character you kind of love to hate, but you also kind of love. And that's, uh, again, it just... He's like, Wes puts you in the position of the kids in that, like, I look at Royal and I'm like, you're a racist asshole you're horrible to your ex-wife, you're horrible to your kids, you make light of things that like, when Henry is like, my wife died of stomach cancer, you don't eat burgers and fries. It's horrendously painful. Like he's treading on very real pain nearly everywhere he chooses to stomp. And the movie like leads you on this journey of like making peace with the fact that like, that's the guy he is. This is Mm -hmm. who I am. And this is who you are. And I can wait for you to be the person I need you to be. And you can wait for me to be the person that you want me to be. Or we can just have a relationship as we are. Ian, what are your little final little thoughts? Um, you know, just a couple of things. I, you know, I really do love this period of Wes. And I'm really excited to talk about the two other films that we're going to get to talk about. Uh, because I do love the topics that he is discussing specifically, you know, relationships with troubled uh, parental figures. Um, But I also love that these films take place in the real world, even if that is an alternate world than our own. Um, And, you know, I just kind of wanted to share a fun little couple things that I learned on the commentary. The first one being that like, it is very pointed that uh, the world around the Tenenbaums is exactly the same in perception as when they were kids, as as it is when they are adults. There is no, nothing to signal that there has been any shift in time. Um, everything is actually specifically designed so that it looks exactly the same as when they were children. Um, this kind of goes to like, you know, emphasize again, that like these people have not moved on from those times. And um, I mean, I also just wanted to mention that like Gene Hackman is phenomenal in this. I agree with you, Mackenzie. And I think the infamous uh, combativeness that he had behind the scenes actually plays really well on screen i wish he wasn't so mean to poor kid wes uh you know back in the day um but i think it actually plays to the benefit of the film and of the character there's a real edge to royal Mm -hmm. and there's a real edge to the way that ethel views royal and you know i believe it's widely known that angelica houston was always coming to wes Wes's defense and also was pretty combative with Gene Hackman on the set. Um, but yeah, no, I just, I just do kind of appreciate, even though I don't love the fact that Gene Hackman's an asshole, <laughs> do kind of appreciate the way in which it presents itself on screen and kind of like is in the text, in the meta text almost of the film. Mackenzie, why don't you go ahead and start us off with your final thoughts real briefly for the Royal Tenenbaums and your star rating. Truly. This is one of the only West films I love that I cannot physically give five stars because I really do like it. Sometimes the Richie Margot stuff does catch me up 
a little too much. So I always give this film four and a half stars. There was one watch out of four that I upped it to five. I guess I was feeling a little like, who cares that night? But then I went back down to four and a half uh, because I just, (laughs) you know, every other watch of this movie, I get a bit more like, God, I love you as characters. I hate this relationship. Um, But pretty much Mm -hmm. everything else in the film, I adore. I love the characters. I love the storytelling. I love the performances. I love the writing. I love the way it looks. Uh, It is a peak Wes Anderson film for a reason. Uh, it is not my personal favorite, but I think it is absolutely one of his bests and a filmography that I think is just pretty much full of his bests. Um, so yeah, I'm four and a half stars, obviously a big fat heart. I just, I can't go to five. I it can't, it's not in me because Margot and Richie get me so fucked up sometimes. Um, but that's where I'm at. Ian, what about you? Um, you know, the, the, the relationship between Margot and Richie uh, is not usually something I think about. And I'm always kind of surprised when I come back to the film, to be perfectly honest. And I'm like, ooh, forgot about that. I think I might just block it out, Mackenzie. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this has always been my favorite Wes Anderson film up until very recently where um, his most recent effort, Asteroid City, took me by storm i love that movie i wish it was in the criterion collection and we could tack it on to this little mini series but alas it's not um so this is like five stars for me it's my second favorite of his i identify so closely with the character of chaz and just the relationships with the children and their father um i feel like i identify really heavily with chaz but there are little pieces from margo and from richie that i identify strongly with it's just a very emotional and personal film for me that I've had a rough year dad always gets me and yeah uh gave me Wes Anderson in a way so I love it so much and now for our very special guest Rachel what are your final thoughts and your star rating for the Royal Tenenbaums five banger obviously (laughs) for uh for the priest going face down the stairs <laughs> while Chaz and Eli are duking it out. Yes, yes. And also for when Royal is like, I'm dying. I have uh, six weeks to live. And Ethelene having a full-on breakdown, Royal immediately backtracking like, no, I'm not dying. And then her going, why would you say that? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Are you dying or are you not dying? And him watching Gene Hackman as Royal make the decision like, oh, to get what I want, I'm going to say I'm dying like for real, for real. I'm going to commit to this. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Wes Anderson, for putting to film some dynamics that uh, I feel like I shouldn't relate to. But then I watch it and I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I love you very much. I'm excited to hang out with you as soon as we hop off this call. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I love I love talking about movies with you as we do frequently in our home. And it's nice to, to share with the world and with our dear friend Ian. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been honestly such a joy. You're such a joyous person. And I just love, you know, getting to talk to you about these things. And it's finally nice to put a face with, you know, somebody who I've come to consider one of my best friends is, you know, partner and love of her life. I, I, yeah, I've loved this conversation. I've loved getting to meet you. Um, and if anybody else wants to share their love for Rachel, for us, 
for the Royal Tenenbaums, for Wes Anderson, or what we are talking about next, which is going to be the second in what we are titling Wes Anderson's Bad Dad Trilogy, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. They can write or send us their voicemails 90 seconds or under to the Criterion Connection at gmail.com. We don't have anything for you today, so that just about does it for us. So, Rachel, Mackenzie, until then, see you next time on the Criterion Connection. It's just that I